I pray today that God will teach us how to train our minds, how to prepare our minds so that we will be able to exchange evil passions for godly passions. Ever wondered, how do I do that? How do I take these passions that I have, these emotions that I have, these desires that I have toward evil, but change them towards being passionate towards the Lord? That's why today I want to talk to you about taking control of your emotions. How many of you feel like you can do a better job at taking control of your emotions? Anybody? <laughs> so I'm going to pray that uh, the Lord will help us prepare our minds. In other words, train our minds, not just to exchange our evil passions for godly desires, or what, but also our numbness of heart with a vibrant first love. Our numbness of heart toward the Lord, our numbness of heart toward our children, or maybe toward our spouse, toward the things of God, towards the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But exchange that toward having a vibrant love for all of the above. How to exchange feelings of anger with feelings of compassion. And how to teach us, I'm praying and asking God to teach us how to discipline our own emotions. <clears throat> Now, one of the greatest problems people have in marriage is that they do not know what to do with themselves when they fall out of love. They don't know how to deal with that moment where the butterflies are gone and they go like, well, things are just normal. How do I manage my emotions during that time? What should a couple do when they've lost that loving feeling or how do they command their hearts to love again or to become vibrant again in marriage? Another problem is um, <clears throat> when a child tells a parent, I don't feel like it. <laughs> what does the parent do? Johnny, you better obey your mom. I don't feel like it. Well, then your parents usually go like, yo, you better start feeling like it real soon, right? You better start feeling like it quick or you're going to feel something else. In other words, you are commanding your child to command their own emotions, their own feelings. You and I have experienced this so many times because we have the same problem of having to force our feelings into the opposite directions of what they currently desire to go. They desire to go this way, but we're commanding them to go the opposite direction. How can we succeed at this? We have generally lost the art altogether of choosing our emotions, and we've given ourselves to allowing our emotions to choose our destinies and allowing our emotions to choose the temperature of our marriages and the culture of our homes. And we've allowed our emotions to dictate to us who we are. So you and I have experiences. I mean, in many, many ways, even in, how about we are told by scriptures, be grateful. Well, I'm not. I'm not feeling it, Lord. And he says, I don't care that you're not feeling it. I'm telling you to be it. When gratefulness was the last thing on your mind is when you read, be grateful. We have generally lost this art of choosing. You might say, well, Jacques, I don't believe that you can actually command an emotion. <clears throat> well, I agree that we've never been taught how to train uh, on how to command our emotions. We've, we haven't had that training, yet Scripture consistently commands us to have certain emotions that we don't have. For instance, here's a short list of emotions the Bible commands you not to have. 
It says, do not hate, which is really an emotion, right? It says, do not fear. That's an emotion. So don't have that emotion. Do not be anxious. Do not be envious. Do not be jealous. Have no evil passions. But I have them. Well, tell them to stop. Well, how do I do that? That's what we're talking about today. Instead of all these negative emotions we are commanded not to have, we are instead commanded to have others. For instance, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. I don't feel like it. No. <laughs> you tell your feelings what you're going to do and what you're going to feel. Rejoice with the one who rejoices. And then walk over there and weep with the one who weeps. Well, how's that possible? I don't know. It tells us to do this, right? Love your enemies when all you currently feel for them is contempt. Love them. Okay. Be grateful. Be thankful. Remain hopeful in all things, we are told. That's a tall order, wouldn't you say? Our problem is we generally do not control our emotions, but instead are controlled by them. This is a sign that I am not led by the Spirit of God, is when I am led by my own feelings and emotion. My feelings and my emotions generally, if not 100% of the time, lead me away from what the Spirit is leading me to. So we have to watch out for our emotions. We've never been told to be led by them. So you have to always be worried about or concerned or question when you say to yourself, well, I feel like the Lord wants me. Wait a minute. I don't always feel like the Lord wants me. I'm told by the Lord what to do, right? That is a very different issue. Like, for instance, people go, well, you know, the Lord leads you subjectively. Well, let me just tell you, when God told Moses what to do, did Moses feel like doing it? No, he says, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Well, God, you've got to be kidding me. I can't even speak well. He tells Gideon, Gideon, go and conquer the army. He says, are you kidding me? I am the weakest of the weak. You show me one time where God told somebody to do something and they go like, you know, God, everything you tell me all the time just affirms what I've already felt. <laughs> like turning the other cheek. I've always wanted to turn the other cheek after getting slapped. It's my greatest desire. <laughs> giving them my coat after they tell me to give it to them. Walk in an extra mile. That's what I've always desired to do. No, we always desire to do almost basically the opposite because the flesh desires the opposite of the spirit. So please, it's a highly questionable thing to say, I feel like the Lord is telling me. You either know it or you don't, right? He either speaks to you because it's there or he's not. Now that is a different can of worms that I just opened that I did, wished I didn't. And we won't talk about that. We're talking about how to command our emotions, or how to manage them, how to deal with them, what to do with them. How do we get them to change? <clears throat> this, is what, this is why I would like for us to draw um, out of this scripture that we are reading, the relationship between the mind and the heart. Now, I'm using these terms loosely, the mind and the heart, because just three weeks ago, I talked to you about what constitutes the heart. 
And we said the heart is in fact the seat upon which your desires, your emotion, your mind, your conscience sits. And But now for, for today's purposes, I would like to use these terms loosely and say I want to show you how what you think affects your heart, your desires, your emotions, your appetites. And as a matter of fact, your mind assists, assists your heart in obeying these emotional commands that we find all through Scripture. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back to our verse, our text, which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And to the production guys in the back there, I'd love for you to stay on the verse, all right? Stay on the verse because we are going to walk, walk through this verse. First it says, 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. To prepare means to get ready beforehand, before doing something. You first pack your bags before you take off to go to the airport. You prepare beforehand, prepare. As a matter of fact, to prepare means to train. When an athlete is preparing for an event, that athlete is training. <laughs> and here the Bible is telling us to prepare our minds. In other words, to train our minds before action, because without training it, there will be no action. Other translations worded this verse as, and I quote, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Somebody says, I didn't know my mind had loins. But this is, in fact, a metaphor showing us what to do with our minds. You see, um, uh, to gird up the loins of something is, in the, in the old times, they understood exactly what was being said here because they used to wear long clothes, like robe-like clothes, all the way down to the ground. And um, to gird up the loins, they would take the back part of that robe. They would probably, like a diaper in, a, in one way, you know, they would probably go down, take the bottom of the loins through their legs, pull it up, and tuck it into their belt. And then those parts that hang down, they would pull it up tuck it up into their belt. And so they are girding up the loins. They are pulling up and tucking in the loins. And here he's given us this wonderful metaphor, this great picture of how that is done in your mind. That is how you prepare or that is how you train your mind by girding up the loins of your mind. So in the same way, <laughs> pull up and tuck away all those loose ends in your mind. You're wondering, why, is my, why are my emotions all over the place? Because your mind is all over the place. Why am I so distracted? Because you got loins hanging everywhere. You got to gird them up, tuck them in, put them away. Those useless thoughts. Put up and tuck away all those, those uh, long skirts hanging off your mind that functions as an obstacle. Because the reason they would gird up their loins, they would tuck it in, is so that they can run without obstruction. They will not trip. And most of us, we are tripped. We trip over so many things emotionally, desires with our appetites, and we don't realize why. Well, it's because our minds are hanging all over the place, and I can't go here because I think that, and I can't do that because I think this. And I can't serve the God, God this way because I have an opinion about this denomination, that denomination, this doctrine, that doctrine. 
and I have opinions about people. And so after a while, what you have is you have so many hurdles around yourself because your mind hasn't, wasn't trained. You can't go anywhere without tripping. <laughs> so the plainest way of saying it is this. Put away useless thoughts that are taking up mental real estate. Just put them away. Put away thoughts that are just cluttering your mind. For instance, what if people don't like me over there? What if? What if people are going to be angry with me if I do this, if I, if I disagree with them on something? Literally, uh, you won't believe how many pastors deal with just that question. Like, why they can't deal with issues people face in real life, at the office, in culture, with their families, in the schools. They can't deal with things because, you know, I don't want people to be angry at me. They can't, pastors can't hold people accountable because I don't want them to be angry at me. I don't want to be unpopular. And so they have all these thoughts and these thoughts cause them to never really do anything. So the plainest way of saying it is, Put away thoughts that are clouding your thinking. Put them away. Put away thoughts that are causing you to be double-minded. Maybe I would have had a better life. Or maybe I would have been happier with somebody else. Put away thoughts that are causing you to be distracted from God's purposes. And until you do this, until you start dealing with your mind this way, until you start training your thoughts, you will not be ready for action. You'll be preoccupied with how you feel about stuff that do not matter. This is your life. <laughs> Here it is, folks. This is your station. This is the time in history God has you in. Stop imagining things and then how they could have been much better if it just wasn't for everything your life in your life that you have no control over. I have no control over my wife. A little control of my kids. A little control. I have no control of the job. I have no control over the weather. I have no control over the Illinois. Uh, Illinois. Did I say Illinois? <laughs> I meant Illinois. Um, whatever you know. I mean, did I? <laughs> I'm like Illinois. Hmm. So many things we don't have control over. And we're always like, yeah, if it just wasn't like that, if, just, if that wasn't for that guy, if it wasn't for this guy, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for him, my life would have been so much different. My boss, and I like, my life would have been so, this is your station, this is your life, this is your perfect life, as a matter of fact, perfectly ready for you to show God how faithful you are to him in this life. This life is perfect for you. Your family is perfect. Everything is perfect to turn you into a person of character, somebody who can glorify God with the life that's been given to them. Stop filling your mind with useless longings. Ah, oh, you know, the good old times, so much better. Well, you know, my, my grandmother's cooking was so much better. I'll miss my grandmother's cooking. My t the TV shows used to be so much funnier, weren't they? You know, like, just longing for better times. Life, life has become so hard for us now. And like, I don't feel like I even belong here anymore. 
I know that those feelings come to us all. Well, hey, what do you do with your mind when you start feeling like that? You know, my whole life's been so uh, such a disaster, such a disaster. I've got so many, so many failures behind me. I just, you know, why are you even thinking about that? How is that helping you in any way? The reason your emotions do not rejoice as they ought to, the reasons you cannot be pleased and satisfied and content is because your mind is cluttered with garbage thoughts, occupied with useless, purposeless entertainment and worldly conversations all day long. What part of your daily thought life are you willing to put upon a screen for all to see? That's the question. Uh, I would say for most of us, a very, very tiny part, <laughs> if any. Because our, our thoughts, we're working very hard to make our lives look not as messy as our thoughts truly are. But honestly, you know God sees all things, right? I think it's one degree too cold, Steve. For Tony it is. <laughs> so the reason our emotions do not rejoice, the reason they cannot be pleased or satisfied or content at all, is because really what you allow, what you give your mind to, your inability to train your thoughts. So the first, the first statement he said there is, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So he addresses the mind twice. Pair your mind. Tray your mind. And then he says, and be sober-minded. What does this mean? Well, according to my study Bible, it means thoughts that are steadfast are sober thoughts. Over and above, or over and against, excuse me, contrary to drunk thoughts, that struggle to stand, always rocking back and forth, back and forth. Huh? Well, no, yes, no, yes, no. A sober mind is a mind that doesn't rock back and forth. A sober mind is a self-controlled mind with self-controlled thoughts, not intoxicated thoughts that are all over the place, falling around like a drunk man. A sober mind is a mind that has clear thinking, thinking that is, in, in other words, void of deception, just clarity of thought. How do you get clarity of thought? You start thinking God's thoughts after him. That's clear thinking. What do you believe about this, whatever God says about it? It's time for us to take back what God gave Adam, and that is the job of calling things by its name. Adam was given the task of calling things what they are. And you and I have to start calling things for what they are. And that's prophetic. That's the guy that's able to draw lines according to God's standards and value systems. According to God's will. Can you see something and call it sin? Can you see something and call it perverse? Can you see something and call it holy? Can you, are you actually able, willing to start calling things for what they truly are? This is really a call of God on your life to do that. And this is why last week we talked about discernment. Because without it, you wouldn't know what to call it. You would think, well, it's okay when in fact it's evil. Or you would call it okay when in fact it's perfectly holy. But for most part, 
as you know, I know you know this, for most part, people don't think with divine discernment. They think with their own feelings. And because they're feeling driven, they really step into a lot of traps everywhere and they don't know why things are so grave for them. So a sober mind is a steadfast mind, is a controlled mind, is a mind that has clear thoughts, is a mind with moral decisiveness, is very, very decisive in regards to morality. It's not what you see with the celebrity pastors and musicians, uh, this crop of musicians that we have. If, if half of them are saved, I'd be, very, I'd be very shocked. I mean, you ask any one of them what they think about a certain moral issue going on in culture today, they would say what? Well, I don't know, you know, I don't know. God knows, he's the judge, I'm not the judge. Well, yeah, he is the judge, he's already given his verdict. You are the one that's supposed to echo that verdict. Well, I'll leave that up to God. Well, evidently, folks. <laughs> Moral decisiveness. Moral decisiveness. You see, the sober Christian is in charge of his own priorities. While the intoxicated mind is like a little dog on a leash, led around by his temptations. Ah, oh, squirrel! The person with the intoxicated mind allows his priorities to be set by his temptations. Whatever he's tempted by is where he goes off to. His mind is always into the next temptation or the next distraction, but never what is my highest priority. It's not about priorities. It's about feelings. And little do we know how absolutely destructive this is because a person is first 20, gets saved, and then for the next 40 years, distracted and tempted. Because their minds simply cannot be fixed on the priorities built around God's value systems. The Christian whose thoughts are intoxicated is therefore the Christian who falls, who fails to think God's thoughts after him. Can't do it. I can only think what I feel instead of think what God has said regarding any situation, marriage, child rearing, your finances, or whatever it might be. The Christian whose thoughts are intoxicated is the one who fails to hold God's values in his mind. For instance, the intoxicated mind, the one who's not sober-minded, the one who's got a mind that is intoxicated, is the one who will prioritize things that are not God's priorities because he doesn't build his life around God's priorities. He builds his life around his own passions, his own desires, and his own feelings. For instance, this is the guy that'll put, that'll put sports over God. This is the person that will prioritize secular education for the kids over scriptural knowledge. Well, education is really important, Pastor. My son needs an education. I didn't say he shouldn't have an education. I'm just saying his secular education should never be more important than his scriptural education because the one is eternal, the other one is temporal. But they can't see it. They're intoxicated. They lack judgment. They cannot discern. The person whose mind is intoxicated is the person 
who prioritizes money or making money over serving God faithfully. Got to keep going, got to keep going, got to keep going. <clears throat> they can almost, not almost, serve God with the same passion as they do money. That's an intoxicated mind. They have lost judgment altogether. They lack judgment like a person who, who, who's, who, who's guilty of a DUI. What do they say? He's driving under the influence. Now he's guilty of it. Why? Because, yeah, he lacks judgment in his driving, right? He can't respond the way he should. So the intoxicated mind holds priorities that are obviously earthly, that are fleshly, not eternal. So our conclusion here is that we have two images given to us by the Apostle Paul, what to do with our minds. First, we have to, we have to prepare, we have to train our minds like, like somebody who's getting ready to run. Gird up the loins of your mind so that you can take action, so that you can run. Secondly, he gives us a second picture to have a sober mind holding fast to God's priorities. See them clearly and focus on them without distractions or temptations, constantly eating away at your focus. So in other words, training in sober thinking leads to godly priorities. Training in sober thinking leads to godly priorities. You might, you might ask, well, tra training in sober thinking for what reason? Well, having godly priorities for what reason? It actually says that in this verse. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. Set your hope fully. People who cannot set their hope fully, they have little hope and they cannot set their hope on the grace of God is because they're preoccupied with all of the other things their mind is running after, right? Their fears, their regrets. And these people, these people cannot be satisfied. Nothing's ever good enough for them because their mind is so scattered. So in other words, if you're asking, train my mind, train my thinking, for what purpose? For hope. For hope, that's the purpose. Being able to set your hope on the grace of God, that's why you train your mind. In order to have godly priorities, that's the reason why you train your mind. You may have come here this morning needing hope. You may have come here this morning needing hope, and here Peter is commanding you to hope fully. Hope fully. Have hope. This is my prayer for you today, that you would leave this place with a brand new hope, a fresh hope, a powerful hope, a conquering hope. There is hope for you. If you're an emotional basket case, let me tell you, there's hope for you. <laughs> it, if you feel you cannot rejoice and you've lost the grip of your emotion, there is hope for you. But the question is, how do you obey that command? This is the challenge we have as Christians. We are commanded to turn certain emotions off and we are commanded to turn certain other emotions on 
How do I do that? And in this portion, uh, we drew, we drawing truth from Peter's counsel on how to do just that, how to command our emotions by preparing our minds for action and having sober thinking. And since hope resides in the heart, we conclude, therefore, that the mind is given for the sake of the heart. God gave you a mind, and he gave you a heart, and he connected the both of those, and he gave both a function. And your mind has a function. See, whatever, whatever can, can fix your, your attention actually has your focus, and whatever has your focus just plays with your feelings. So this is the portion that we have to look at, you see. When we are preparing our minds and when we maintain a sober mind, we are in fact preparing our hearts. That's what you're doing. When you protect your focus, when you protect uh, yourself from having an intoxicated mind, when you choose to and work for, toward and train to have a sober mind, you are in fact guarding your heart. Above all things, guard your heart. And that's what you're doing. You are not guarding your heart by putting things in front of you that is not God-glorifying. You are not guarding your heart when you allow your mind to have thoughts of vanity. When you have thoughts of disgruntled thoughts all day long. God, that's happened to all of us. Just walk around the house all day long just grumpy and complaining and trying to find the next mistake. Trying to find everybody else's fault and trying to find what else causes my life to be such a dumpster fire. Let's look for let's look for the next thing to complain over. You know, folks, and this is the thing. You know what we have lost completely in the church today? We have lost completely the ability to be corrected. When there is a group and a group is being corrected, everybody shouts, Amen, Pastor, preach it, preach it. Why? Because that person's thinking about everybody else but themselves. You walk up to somebody and you say to them, hey, by the way, this verse right here, um, I really believe that uh, you should consider maybe coming to the Lord over that because it's evident that, that you are breaking this verse. How dare you? Nobody can be corrected anymore. It's America. Come on. Free spirits, you know. And we, we're, all, we're, all, uh, we're all our own person. Don't you tell me. It's no longer possible in the church today. That's why people no longer do it. So since hope resides in the heart, we therefore conclude that the mind is given in order to impact the heart. You see, your, your mind serves your heart. Your mind impacts your emotions. And when we prepare our minds and we maintain a sober mind, we are in fact dealing with our heart. We are being faithful over our hearts. It is very important to know that Christianity is not a dead, dry set of doctrines. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about a heart that responds in love, trust, and repentance to a loving Father in a relational way. That's Christianity. Doctrine is given to you so that you can see something about God which causes you to react to Him differently, respond to Him differently. Every single time God pulls that curtain open a little bit and you can peek through it and you can see something about God, boom, it changes you. Every single time, just about, 
people see God, they fall down to their fall down on their knees. They fall down prostrate. It impacts you so much when you see something about God. That's why doctrine is important. Christianity is not is not dead, dry set of doctrines. No, it is in fact a vibrant relationship with the Almighty. But you get there by seeing something about Him. And you see something about Him when you understand a certain doctrine. <clears throat> For example, I'll give it to you this way. Watch this quick. Christianity is not just knowing those doctrines. It is, in fact, allowing those doctrines to be the spark that puts your heart on fire. Knowledge isn't what we're looking for. Knowledge, we're looking for knowledge to spark something in us toward the Lord. For instance, Satan knows that God sent Jesus. He has a lot of right thoughts about God. He has a lot, he has really great doctrine, actually. Satan knows that God sent Jesus. Satan knows Jesus died and rose from the dead. Satan knows that Jesus paid the price for man's sins. Satan knows so many truths about God, but then Satan feels only hate toward God because of it. You see, the Christian and the Christian's life is all about having an actual love for the Lord because of those same things. A longing for the presence of the Lord, an actual desire for the things of God, a heart surrendered to His will. That's what the heart is for. But what's the brain for? What's the mind for? What are our thoughts for? You see, the mind is there to serve that heart to help that heart understand and shake out that doctrine so that you can understand this is who God is and your heart will be aflamed. We know certain things about God so that our hearts, our emotions, and our desires can properly respond to God. We are given certain doctrines so that we can know certain things about God and that knowledge of God births that desire you need. So don't ever trivialize a hardcore study to discover certain doctrines about God because that's how he pulls that little curtain away so you can see something about him that is absolutely glorious. I'm so excited our homeschool co-op this year, um, they have a theme and their theme is the attributes of God. So important to understand the attributes of God, the aseity of God, the eternality of God. There's so many things about God. When you see it, it does something to you and it causes you to have high praise and high worship because now you're serving a really great God, greater than you would have known before knowing those doctrines. Now, as a pastor, <laughs> I can tell you that the most pressing counseling needs people have is about how they feel. It's like, I've never had to counsel somebody Well, I've had to counsel somebody for one or two things. One thing, I've had to counsel them because they had a feeling about something. And number two is because they no longer had a feeling about something. <laughs> it's like, those are the two things you have to counsel people over, right? I don't feel like doing it. Or I feel like doing it. Whatever it is determines whether you are right or wrong. <laughs> right? But it's always about how we feel or how we should have felt, but we don't feel. 
It's about their emotions. I no longer love my spouse. I feel numb towards the Lord. I feel angry and vengeful. I feel depressed, despondent, disillusioned. I'm fearful. I feel rejected. I'm hurt. And for most part, people usually hope somebody will come, just lay their hands on them, pray for them, and just sympathize with them. All I'm looking for is sympathy, and I'll already feel better. I want you to join me in my mire. I want you to join me in the slime. I want you to jump into this pool of mud with me. and That will make me feel better. At least we both feel horrible. It's like socialism. Let's all be equally poor, all right? Oh, then at least we're equal. <laughs> and for most part, that's what people are looking for. But the real biblical counsel is that is that um, is the case that would say, uh, what is your strategy? What is your strategy? That should be the real biblical counsel. Okay, so I know you feel this way and you shouldn't, or you should feel this way and you don't. What is your strategy to change where you're at? Now, how can we change this this constant discontentment that you're dealing with in life? How can how can we change? How can we get you to start rejoicing in what you are going through? What is your strategy? How do you plan on on warring against this numbness towards the Lord? Warring against this numbness towards your spouse? Warring against this fear or this anxiety or warring against this hopelessness that you find yourself in? Warring against the loss of love towards those you ought to love? The Apostle Paul's counsel to anybody struggling with this is this. Prepare, in other words, train your mind for action. And now make sure that you are sober-minded. You do not toss to and fro. You're not falling around like a drunk man. You can't take a stand for anything. Don't ever trust somebody that cannot take a stand. They're intoxicated in their thoughts. They have no value system. They're guarding themselves from being rejected by those they're going to disagree with. Don't trust that person. How do you plan on warring against the, the loss of love towards those that God has put in your care? You see, the Apostle Paul's counsel is very clear. <clears throat> the biblical idea of having a heart that hopes fully is relentless warfare. It's you staying on it. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Day in, day out, morning till evening, guard your heart. This is the most important thing you ought to do with the heart that God gave you. You see, to, the, to be the person who hopes fully, you will have to become a person who knows how to gird up the loins of your mind, get ready to run. In other words, get ready, train your mind, train your mind. You don't train after the race. You train before the race. You don't build your house in the middle of a storm. You build your house before that storm gets there and you build it on the rock. In other words, you prepare. This is, a build, this is a biblical principle. So don't wait for hard times in your marriage. Decide now what you're going to do with your mind while your marriage is still going good. Don't wait to have first lost that loving feeling before you try and regain it. No, keep it going. Tuck away those thoughts that trip you up and cause you to not run. Cultivate a sober thinking. Then he says, then he says, on the grace, in other words, set your hope fully on the grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, watch this, 
This is so perfectly said. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. In other words, don't build your feelings or don't, don't build yourself around feelings of ignorance. Let me just tell you something. Your ignorance produces feelings. My ignorance produces feeling and passions. And if I conform to those passions and those feelings, then what you will be like is you will look like those people in the world. who cannot even make out whether they're male or female. You will look like somebody who is so confused, and you will be confused, because building your life around a passion that's rooted in ignorance is probably the most foolish thing anybody could ever do. It's a brilliant way of stating it when he says, in fact, you are not your passions. That's what Peter is saying. You are not how you feel about yourself. And he's saying, don't become your feelings. Do not conform or give in to your feelings. Oh, if that can just be something that's true for all of us. Turn to your neighbor and say, do not give in to your feelings. <laughs> all right. If we can just stop doing that, how wonderful would that be? He's showing us how passions can be changed. <clears throat> Here you have conformity, passion, and ignorance. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You have those three things. Former ignorance conforms us to having passions. In other words, ignorance plays out into passions. And to change this equation, we need to read it in this way, and I'll close with this. Evil passions will be conformed to godly passions. In other words, evil passions become godly passions. When ignorance is changed to knowledge, when you, when you wipe out the ignorance in your life, wipe it out. How do you wipe out ignorance? You put truth in there. How do you deal with a lie? You answer it with a truth. In other words, you, you exchange ignorance with knowledge. And when you exchange ignorance with knowledge then evil passions will be, uh, you, you will change uh, passions for evil towards passions with God. I, you cannot love something you have no knowledge of. Is this true? You cannot love something you have no knowledge of. The more you get to know a person, the more, the greater the capacity you have to love them. The more you get to know your wife over the years, the greater capacity you have to love all that is beautiful and glorious about her. In the same way, the more you get to know God in whom there is no evil, in whom there is no shadow of change, in whom it's just a perfectly holy God, the more you get to know Him, the greater knowledge you have of Him, you remove your ignorance of God, and so evil passions will be conformed to godly passions. So let's prepare our minds. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you teach us how to prepare our minds, how to train our minds, that we'll be able to exchange these, there's a numbness of heart with a vibrant first love. 
Help us train our minds that we can that we'll be able to exchange feelings of anger and with feelings of compassion. That we'll be able to exchange evil evil compassion or evil passions for godly passions. Lord, I pray that you teach us how to discipline our emotions, our desires, and our appetites. In Jesus' name, amen.